Our second lesson for this Lord's Day is a very familiar passage of Scripture for this Pentecost Sunday. You will turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 21, and listen carefully again to God's holy and inspired word. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place, and suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, Are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, Ah, they've had too much wine. And when Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd, Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my Spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my Spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And herein ends the reading of God's word to us this day. May all praise and honor and glory be to him and to him alone. Amen. One of the things that you notice as you drive across the central plains of America are the windmills. I'm not speaking about the rather enormous windmills that energy companies have erected to generate power, but rather the ones that are connected to all the farms that dot the landscape. These exist primarily to pump water into troughs for livestock, which is why you will see them out in the middle of nowhere 
as well as near farmhouses and barns. With very little maintenance, they turn almost continuously because it seems that the wind never ceases to blow in the Midwest. And if you pay close attention to the windmills, you will notice that they are always facing into the wind. The vane on the back of it ensures this. The vane is like the rudder of a ship. It steers that big wheel of blades that catch the wind, that causes it to turn, that continues to drive that pump, drawing the water out of the ground, keeping that tank filled so the cattle and horses never lack for water. But then there are those moments when you hear the windmill squeak in protest as it turns suddenly because the wind has changed. Instead of coming out of the north-northwest, it begins to come up out of the south-southwest and it begins to spin at a faster rate, warning you that change is coming and you would be wise to batter down the hatches because something enormous is brewing. From the earliest moments in Scripture, the metaphor that is used to describe the Spirit of God is that of the wind. The Hebrew word is ruach, which means wind or breath. As early as the second verse of Scripture we learn, that the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God, the wind of God, the breath of God, was hovering over the face of the waters. And so it is little wonder then that Jesus, in explaining the facts of spiritual life to Nicodemus, describes the Spirit of God as a wind that blows across the sea of humanity, bringing new life to those whom he chooses. No one can see the wind. You can't tell where it came from or where it goes, Jesus says, but you know that it has passed by, for there is no mistaking the sound that it makes. Now on Pentecost 2,000 years ago, the Spirit of God engaged in a mighty work as He descended upon the small congregation of disciples who were obediently waiting for the Spirit's arrival. They were doing so because... Their risen Lord and Savior had commanded them to do so. And in prayerful anticipation, they were providentially gathered in the same place early on the morning of the beginning of the Feast of Weeks. You see, as an agrarian people, the Jews were very much aware of the rhythms of the seasons. They knew when the planting was to be done, They knew to notice the first fruits of the harvest and that this was to be offered unto the Lord. They knew about thank offerings and how God was their provider and that when the harvest was brought in, that a tenth was to be an offering unto the Lord because it was by God's hands that they had been blessed with all of it. They knew about the harvest later in the year when they would build temporary dwellings near the field so they could grab a few hours of sleep, but that every second counted in bringing in the harvest to prevent the fruit from rotting on the vine. What they did not realize until this particular Pentecost 
was how all these harvest festivals and special offerings were a gracious visual aid for what God was planning to do in terms of the redemption of the world. Now, what do we mean by that? Well, do you remember how it was at Passover that the Jews were being held in bondage in Egypt and God set them free by commanding them on that fateful night to gather all their loved ones in their homes, spread the blood of a lamb on their doorposts so that the angel of death would pass over their homes while bringing the judgment of God upon every other household in Egypt. Do you remember? And God did that to foreshadow what would happen centuries later when His only begotten Son, Jesus of Nazareth, would be crucified at Passover as our sacrificial lamb and how His shed blood would cover us, would protect us from the wrath of God. The Passover feast was to be a constant reminder to them that they were saved by God's actions and that the lifeblood of another had been spilled for their sake. But the feasts did not end there. There were other significant feasts or ceremonial remembrances. Because once the Hebrews occupied the land of promise that the Lord God conquered for them, driving out their enemies before them, they took over the fields that were already in process. They were instructed then to bring the first fruits of the harvest to the priest and to make an offering unto the Lord. Again, recognizing that God was their source, that God was the one to whom they owed their thanks and their gratitude. And so when a farmer would first notice that some of the barley was ahead of the rest of the crop in terms of its development, he would tie a reed to it, a kind of organic ribbon to identify it. Because this was the first fruits. And when it was fully ripe, he would harvest it and bring it to the priest, who on the first day, following the Sabbath associated with the Passover, would receive that offering and wave it before the Lord in the temple, calling attention to the worshiper's gift, offering praise to God for His grace and mercy and faithful providence. This was the first fruits that were acknowledged to be the Lord's possession. He owned the earth and all that was in it. This belonged to Him, and the worshiper was being trained to acknowledge this truth. But consider that the priest did this on the first day following this Sabbath associated with Passover. This was the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And this is the very same day that Jesus rose from the dead. The first fruits of those who have died, Paul writes to the Corinthians. Jesus dies at Passover as our sacrificial lamb, His blood covering our sins in order that God's wrath might be turned away from us. He acts as our propitiation. And then Jesus rises from the dead on the third day, the very same day when the priest would be standing in the temple waving the first fruits of the barley harvest before the face of the Lord, calling attention to the gratitude of the people, recognizing that this belongs to the Father and as a sign of more harvest yet to come. This initial recognition of the first fruits 
was looking forward to the greater harvest that would be recognized with the Feast of Weeks. And you see, the people began a countdown with the first fruits. Every day thereafter, they would count the days, knowing that there was another feast, the Feast of Weeks, exactly 50 days after first fruits. And the Feast of Weeks marked the end of the grain harvest when the wheat was now fully gathered. This is what concerns us this morning, for this in Greek is translated Pentecost. And here the Lord graciously gives a taste of what is now unfolding. Jesus is pouring out His Spirit upon the nations and they are responding to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Do you remember Jesus saying to His disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into His harvest. Beginning at Pentecost, God is bringing in the sheaves. We shall come rejoicing, bringing in the sheaves. And Luke tells us that when the day of Pentecost arrived, the disciples, meaning more than just the twelve, but rather the whole company of those who have been witnesses to the resurrection, were gathered in one place. And the presence of this company of believers is yet one more evidence to us that Christ rose from the dead. I have said to you before that no one would have remained in Jerusalem for this long waiting for the Holy Spirit if the one who promised such a thing was still in the grave. Jesus declared that he would rise from the dead after three days, and if he had not kept that promise, then by what reasoning would anyone have concluded that he was capable of sending the Holy Spirit to them? And so these disciples, along with All of Israel was engaged in the countdown until the Feast of Weeks, but with a very different anticipation in their hearts. They did not know exactly when the Spirit would arrive, but this is what they were looking forward to. And when that day arrived, it was marked by a mighty rushing wind descending upon the place where they were. Divided tongues as of fire rested upon each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to declare the mighty acts of God in languages that they themselves had never spoken, but which were perfectly understandable to the vast number of people assembled in Jerusalem from all over the known world. And the disciples' ability to do this was a miraculous gift of the Holy Spirit. Now notice first here that none of the disciples is left out. Whether they were young or old, rich or poor, male or female, slave or free, whoever these disciples were, they were all recipients of the indwelling Holy Spirit. There is no distinction. In fulfillment of Joel's prophecy, the Spirit is poured out on all flesh. And what the Lord means by that is that all those who belong to Him are recipients of the Spirit. Sons and daughters, young men and old men, male servants and female servants, the Spirit is no respecter of persons. They are all equipped by the Spirit to tell others of the mighty things that God has done in Christ. And Paul indicates to the Romans that you do not belong to Christ if you do not have the Spirit dwelling in you. 
Jesus indicated to the disciples before His death that He would send the Spirit to them after He was glorified and that the Spirit would dwell with them and would take up residence within them. But notice also that the Spirit is not really the subject of the discussion that follows. Those who were bystanders to what was transpiring are amazed at the display the miraculous sign of undereducated Galileans speaking fluently in other languages, bearing witness to the mighty acts of God, but they're not talking about the Holy Spirit per se. They're not like Simon Magus, the sorcerer in Acts chapter 8, who was interested in giving someone money so that they would impart the Holy Spirit to him. They do want to know what all of this means because they are truly mystified by this turn of events. But the Holy Spirit is not the subject matter. Nor does Peter focus on the Spirit here as the third person of the Trinity. The focus is upon what God has done in Christ. The Spirit is working in the background, as it were. The Spirit is equipping the saints here for ministry. The Spirit is giving words to say to the disciples who are speaking in tongues. The Spirit is providing inspiration to Peter as he preaches. The Spirit is opening blind eyes of those in the audience. The Spirit is unstopping deaf ears. The Spirit is planting the Word of Christ in the fertile soil of men's hearts and imparting faith to be invested in the person and work of Christ. The Spirit is calling the names of those whom God has elected for salvation. The Spirit's refreshing tired souls with springs of living water at the deepest recesses of their being and is strengthening their spirits with newfound hope. The Spirit is assuring them that their sins have been forgiven and that they should step forward to be baptized and set apart for holy purposes. But the spotlight is not on the Spirit here. It is on God in Christ. That's what Peter proclaims. The attention falls upon God the Father in Christ the Son. The focus is upon the eternal Son of God whose life was poured out as a ransom for us. It's the Son who was willing to humble Himself and take on the role of a servant becoming obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is what God wants all of them to look at, for this is what saves us. The Father taking our sins and laying them upon Christ, upon the Son who suffers the wrath of God in our place. You see, it's a frustration for the Spirit when disciples turn their eyes upon the Spirit because the Spirit is working hard to turn our eyes upon God in Christ. It's not that the Spirit is indispensable in the work of salvation, but the Spirit does not have anything to do if the Son has not accomplished His work so perfectly at Calvary. Now there was another harvest feast on the Jewish calendar. The Feast of Tabernacles. This occurred in the fall of the year, sometime between late September and mid to late October. And this marked the conclusion of the fruit harvest 
that had been taking place throughout the summer, but as these crops then began to ripen quickly and simultaneously, the people would frequently build temporary shelters or booths out in the field so as to keep working late into the day, grabbing a little bit of sleep and then rising early the next morning to keep at it until all was gathered in. And friends, here is what the church is now experiencing. As more and more of the harvest is being gathered in, and we are called upon to proclaim the gospel of Christ, challenging people to come to Jesus, to do so tirelessly, not taking our ease and comfort, but dwelling in these temporary shelters, depending upon the Lord to provide for us as we labor, not setting our eyes on this world, but keeping our gaze upon the kingdom that is coming into the world. The harvest that is continuing now is the product of what began at Pentecost as the Spirit was unleashed upon the world. And we look forward to the day when Christ will come again and take up residence among us once more. You may remember from our study in the Gospel of John, John's most elegant phrasing of Christ's coming when he says in chapter 1, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And the word that John uses when he speaks of the Son dwelling with us is the word tabernacle. These temporary dwellings that farmers used when they were bringing in the fall fruit harvest. The Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. But the Feast of Tabernacles was always looking forward to the time when it would become permanent. And John writes later in the revelation of Christ to John in chapter 21, Behold, the dwelling place of God, or the tabernacle of God, is with man. He will dwell Same word, tabernacle. He will dwell with them. And they will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. And at Pentecost, the people asked, what does this mean? Well, it means that God has done a marvelous thing for us. It means that God has provided a means of salvation to which we have contributed nothing. It means that God desires that men and women, young and old, rich and poor, slave and free, come to the Son and experience the redemption that He freely offers to all who will surrender to His Lordship. It means that the Holy Spirit will come and dwell in the hearts of all who sincerely repent and surrender to Christ, and the Spirit will provide the necessary power to follow the Lord Jesus. It means that a day is coming when the harvest will be full, and the very last one will have been gathered in, and we will enjoy the land that has been promised since before the foundation of the world. When Peter quotes the prophecy of Joel, Concerning the last days, one senses the urgency that is in his message because it's designed to grip the attention of his hearers, to compel them to not delay 
in hearing and responding to the gospel. And as a result, 3,000 souls responded in faith to that message and it serves as a reminder that God is the Lord of the harvest. What many do not realize is that there is a countdown going on even now. For with the passing of every day, there is one less day until Jesus comes again. I wonder if you have surrendered to the Lord of life. And if not, then I invite you to delay no longer. Surrender to Christ. Be counted among those who will one day be invited to sit with Him at His table and enjoy the wedding feast of the Lamb. Let me invite you to bow your heads and pray with me for a moment. Eternal God, our Father, we thank you this day for the gift